Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. Black Americans with a college degree have lower home ownership rates than white high school dropouts. Black households carry more student debt, which diminishes their credit ratings. In Black communities, the people and the property historically have been undervalued. Our country's history of redlining, racially restricted covenants, zoning regulations, and more embedded racism in its housing policies. And untangling that legacy has proven difficult, especially when some have resisted progress. Efforts by the Biden administration and HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge to tackle systemic racism in housing have included presidential executive orders that reversed Trump-era policies and restored enforcement of fair housing laws. And just last week, the president made another push with a flurry of changes to stave off a housing crisis for millions of renters and other at-risk Americans. The pandemic exposed racial inequities, and there is an urgency to increase Black home ownership as part of the administration's plans to improve educational and economic opportunities in Black communities. In his book, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities, Andre M. Perry examines how the deliberate devaluation of Black Americans and their communities has had real, far-reaching, and negative economic and social effects. He looks at six Black-majority cities whose assets and strengths have been undervalued, including his own hometown of Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, a small city east of Pittsburgh. His book offers stories of Black resilience and pathways to solutions that are urgently needed. He's also a senior fellow with the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program, where his research on housing has been used by this White House. Welcome to Equal Time, Andre. It's great to have you on when housing and housing policy is really at the center of so much of the discussion we're having on inequities, particularly uh, they've really been made plain during this year of COVID. So the Biden administration has put racial equity at the center of its policies, including housing. So the, the White House cited a study you authored in 2018 that found that Black-owned homes were undervalued by $48,000 or a cumulative loss of $156 billion. So how did we get here as a country? And how have housing policies of the past spurred some of these inequities and challenges that we have today? Thanks for having me. But a lot of my research stems from my own personal um, journey to discovering how my parents grew up. Um, I uh, looked at the neighborhoods in which my father lived and died um, and looked at the neighborhoods where my, the, my adoptive mother um, took me in. And they were in areas where they were redlined. Um, they also lived in areas where highway construction barreled through their um, neighborhoods, displacing them. There was urban renewal um, and racial housing covenants surrounded them. But I, I, I did all that to capture a sense of, of, of the conditions that we, we see today. What, what's the overall impact? So I started looking at home prices in Black neighborhoods, comparing them to home prices in white neighborhoods. And, and I controlled for all those things, the reasons why people usually give um, for this. We, we controlled for education, crime, walkability, all those fancy Zillow metrics. And as you stated, Mary, um, we found that homes um, on average across the country are underpriced by 23%, about 48,000 per home. Cumulatively, there's about 156 billion in lost equity. 
Now, uh, there's a lot of attention on appraisers right now, um, but that number it encompasses a lot of different factors, including um, not just appraisals, but um, real estate agent behavior, lending practices, and other factors. Um, but um, it's clear that how we value people comes out in the wash in how we value homes. The, the policies and practices that had essentially had a dim view of Black people are um, led to this, um, this devaluation um, and it, it continues to. My, you know, what's interesting is that that gap in equity uh, really suggests that there's still practices that we've learned to live with, that we are maladjusted to. And so we got yeah. to, to re, um, find those things in order to um, uh, make sure that everyone has a chance at a quality life. It's so interesting that you looked in it through your personal lens, um, because this is a very uh, personal story to me as well. Um, right now, I uh, live in a community in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's my home base in a neighborhood <laughs> that uh, had restricted covenants in the deed. And you can still see the implications because it's still majority white. You can see it in the schools, in the roads, in supermarket access, in gym access, uh, COVID infections and vaccine rates, pretty much everything. And it's so different from if you look where I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, if you go past my neighborhood and what it is now and see just the disparities. So is that disparity repeated across the country with the same disturbing implications? Yeah, you know, um, you see the intrinsic value of whiteness being played out in our neighborhoods. And so, again, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. There's a, a way to interpret my data, um, that 23% difference. It's almost, if you look at the price point, it's almost as if people, when they look at Black communities and Black people, they see twice as much crime than there actually is. They see worse education than there actually is. And they make value judgments um, on that. The, the reverse is true as well. Oftentimes we assume the, that, that whiter is better and it's a better neighborhood. It's, it, it has more uh, better values and, and all the like, because value itself is, is, um, is socially constructed in, 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 in most cases that it's our perceptions about what should be prioritized or perceptions of what um, really um, holds dear to our hearts. But when we see blackness in either the number of people there, the books, the paintings, um, all those different things, it projects and elicit a elicit a response, a negative response based on that sordid history I talked about earlier. And so every day we see um, this being played out in our daily lives, whether you're in a black majority neighborhood or a white neighborhood, um, whiteness is valued more and blackness is uh, is devalued. And, and, I, and I say devalued and the reason why I use that term is because I want to put action, the negative action on the value itself. Too often we blame Black people for anything going wrong in Black communities or in communities. 
in general. And I, and I say this all the time, there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve, that we have got to address the racism and stop blaming black folk for the conditions around them or for reducing values in neighborhoods and the like. I mean, this is that, that, that thinking that comes out of a white supremacist culture that devalues black people. Yeah. Well, the administration has promised in its promises to address housing inequities. They have included an interagency effort to combat discrimination in the home appraisal process. I bring that up because you were talking about appraisals. Um, and why is it necessary? Because I, I think it might play out, what do you think, in the lower number of minority homeowners who have chosen to refinance just in this past year? From January to October of last year, only 6% of black borrowers refinanced their mortgages versus 12% of white borrowers. So can you talk a little bit about this appraisal policy and uh, and what we need to do about that? Yeah, we clearly need some type of action. Um, a, a lot of folks have been paying attention to news to the anecdotal reports of individual um, um, owners who try to refinance or sell their home. Um, and they got an appraisal appraisal done and they suspected that it was low. And um, they proceeded by essentially getting a white stand-in um, and removing all the black books, the the black art, um, clothing that might suggest a, a black person wear it. Then they they found a way to get a second appraiser appraisal. By the way, that happens very rarely. Only uh, um, more than ninety percent of requests for another valuation are denied. And so they, they, they leverage whatever uh, uh, privilege or, or power they had to get a white stand-in. And when, that, when the second appraiser, appraiser came to value their home um, with the white stand-in, the, uh, the appraisal came in significantly higher. In some cases, one case on the West Coast, $400,000 more. Indianapolis, $150,000 more um, uh, in Florida, $200,000 more. This, that's theft. That is just, that's just theft. Because I say it, put it this way. Not only is that hundreds of thousands of dollars out of an individual's pockets, that, that's, a, uh, that's college tuition for someone's uh, a child. That is the ability to, to buy another home. That is um, of the, someone's business that is lost. It, it, you know, that money is what people use to lift themselves up the proverbial social ladders, economic ladders. And so just as um, individuals can test for racism on their own by getting white sand, the HUD and the federal government should be testing as well. And, and they should be creating some type of accountability system. But what, what's clear is that this is a multifaceted issue that requires different agencies coming together because when you're, when you're talking about valuation, it's just not about appraisals. You're talking about lenders and, um, and, and banks in general and contracting and all sorts of different variables. So you need to bring all those uh, actors to the, the, the table and say, okay, what's going on here? Because clearly, um, if we can do this 
um, from the seat of our offices, uh, looking at different ways to, to value homes, the federal government can as well. And so, so it's time for us to come up with new systems. But as you know, Mary, that our, we, um, these practices that we've developed are fully ensconced in culture. So when people say appraisals, they go, well, we have to have an appraisal system. Uh, not, not, we don't have to have the one that we have. Um, when, when, so it, it's, it's, and then by the way, I shall, will say this, um, 85% of appraisers are white. 85%. And so um, we need to diversify the field. We need new practices because even if we diversify the field, if you're using the same practices, you're still going to get some of the same results. So for me, it, it's really time to rethink, but you need to bring all the actors um, to the table. Oh, yeah. And it's like you said, one of those supposedly race neutral policies that isn't. Uh, you know, like so many of our policies. Um, yeah. And how about how much wealth is lost when we aren't refinancing and doing things like that? Yeah, you know, and that's a great, generational, you know, it's generational. There, there's a couple of things. One of the reasons why um, uh, many black people don't seek refinancing because they fear coming in with a lower valuation, you know, it, it, and there's truth to that fear. and so. Um, but we need to build wealth just like everyone else. Um, most of black wealth is indexed in two areas, home ownership and business ownership. And, and we're, we're not as prevalent in, um, say, stocks and bonds and 401k plans and 529s and, you know, and all these other things that people use to um, build wealth. And so when you have a housing crisis or something happens, you essentially wipe out black wealth. That's what happened in 2008, 2007, 2008. Black wealth was wiped out. So we need all the sort of passive ways and, and deliberate ways to build wealth just like everyone else. So we should see similar rates of refinancing. We should see similar rates of people with a 401k, but these drags of racism in the market are still with us. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned that it, it's not just the appraisals. You talked a little bit about even what happened. Explain what happens when black home, homeowners try to borrow money. Oh, man. I mean, there's lots of research, research uh, uh, on this with that people with who qualify for um, quality loans for low interest rates are often steered in, in worse conditions or worse um, interest rates. And so, um, and that is regular, even beyond this, the, the, the housing crisis. That's just, again, when people see blackness, they see uh, risk. And that is, you know, and, and that is the, um, one of the heirlooms of the homeowners loan corporation's practice of redlining, that where they drew red lines around um, predominantly black neighborhoods that um, um, deeming them unworthy for greater investment and, and refinance loans and down payment assistance. And, but that said, uh, it, it, while it certainly robbed people of opportunity and wealth, it's just a horrible template of, of seeing Black people as risky. And, and, it, and it comes out in lending, it comes out in refinancing, it comes out in appraisal. It, 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 this, 
And, and the crazy part about this whole thing is that when we see segregation with white people, that's the real risk to society. But we don't, we actually reward um, that segregation um, with lower interest rates, with development, with um, these assumptions um, that that neighborhood is strong. No, it, 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 there's lots of nefarious ways to filter out people um, to get an exclusive community that actually cause, causes long-term harm. And that's what's happening. So we should be risking the segregation and de-risking um, where there are Black folk doing everything that they can to get ahead, but are, are, are throttled by these racist practices. Yeah, I really like the way you put that, that you change your whole value system, value and integrated uh, community, a, a diverse community, and reward that. But that is just not what's being done. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking I got to move the Toni Morrison and the Romare Bearden, right? <laughs> um, now, let's talk a little bit. We've laid out some of the challenges. Now, people are seeming to talk about solutions. So the Biden administration announced some new programs and policies last week. For example, they named a new acting director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, who first off called out the lack of affordable housing and access to credit for many communities of color. And the administration announced some initiatives to speed up that distribution of rental relief and to encourage local governments and courts to prevent evictions, which is a looming crisis. So how has the economic recovery after COVID made changing housing policy a priority? And, and what do you think of some of, the, of some of these actions and how and the effectiveness of them? Well, I certainly appreciate Biden and the administration doing things that many other administrations failed to do, um, and chiefly by essentially asserting that we should have equitable uh, uh, equity in our government services. The, the only problem I see is that his framework for this is to eliminate racism from um, practices, from policy and practices at the federal level. That's great, and that is good, and we should do that. The problem is, even if you remove all the, these the, these drags of racism that I, that I say, you still have a wealth gap that is enormous. So it's, it, you also have to somehow restore the value that's extracted um, over time by these policies, and, and we don't see anything like that. And that means um, grants, and uh, low interest loans to potential homeowners. Um, that means we need micro loans to current homeowners in areas that are devalued. Um, the same way we built up a white middle class after the, after the depression, we can build up black communities that have been historically discriminated against using some of those same means. But as you know, um, that the Supreme Court has made race-based policies um, very difficult. But, but when it comes to housing discrimination, it, it's not really race-based. They, they attacked places in which ma ma majority Black people lived. And so we can figure out a place-based strategy to deal with the, the injury caused by those practices to individuals, regardless mm -hmm. of who they are. And so I appreciate all that Biden's doing. I mean, clearly we're around 
the moratoriums on um, um, evictions, uh, uh, we do need a more robust solution because we keep kicking that can down the road. Eventually, we need to deal with something that makes both landlords whole and renters whole so we can move forward. Um, but I, again, I agree with a lot that we're doing, but it's going to be insufficient if we don't find a way to get real resources to individuals who've been discriminated against over time. Yeah. Well, they had to even start back at square one and even up enforcement of the Fair Housing Act. Oh, absolutely. Um, which really they had suspended that. So, you know, Mary, Mary, uh, I, you know, I hate to interrupt you, but the, no, no. I mean, that, that point is so on target because. In some cases, we have the evidence, um, the Community Re- uh, Reinvestment Act, we have the evidence of banks not reinvesting in Black communities, but we've done nothing about it. You know, and so, you know, some of what Biden is doing is a recognition that HUD hasn't enforced its policies over time. So um, we got to go to square one and say, hey, we do have a Fair Housing Act here that is supposed to prevent some of the things that we're talking about, why not go back to enforcement in a way that makes sense for all Americans? Yeah, it it makes me crazy when they talk about it's social engineering, when the social engineering were the original, was the original policy in the first place (laughs) that got us to where we are. Um, Let's talk about your book, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. And it lays out, housing, education, and wealth disparities that we all face. So can you talk a little bit about that and what else in Black communities is undervalued and it's the very devaluing of Black life? Yeah, you know, I wrote the book um, primarily coming from my education role. Um, people now know, they, they, they think I'm like a housing expert, evaluation expert and all this, but I actually got my start in education And I used to manage four charter schools um, in New Orleans post-Katrina. And there was a line I used to hear all the time that made really no sense. They would say, if only we could fix the schools, everything would be all right. And knowing that schools are financed through um, how we value homes and their their assessment on property taxes. Now, um, schools that uh, with predominantly black and brown children or children of color, I should say, um, get $23 billion less, $23 billion less than their, um, than their white counterparts, 23 billion. Now there is no one, no one in lives in a white school district would switch that situation. And so for me, I've always said, we got to look at the bigger picture. We got to look at housing. We got to look at um, political participation and investment. I talked in the book about um, needing to invest in black women, get out the vote efforts because they're always called upon the last minute to bail out a a, a Democrat, generally Democratic elected official when we should be investing in black women. I talk about health, how black women can't buy or educate their way um, to better maternal um, health outcomes. And so we need to invest in, in Black women when it comes to health and divest, um, divest 
from racist practices in in this arena. I talk obviously. I, I talk about housing. I talk about education and the need to invest in black teachers. Um, and so, um, kids. You know, I say this all the time. Kids don't live in schools; they live in neighborhoods. And and the devaluation of of homes certainly impacts the entire wealth of the community. That, like I like I said, that that 156 billion of lost equity is a big number. It would have financed more than eight million four year degrees based on the average amount blacks blacks uh, um, of a public education. It would have financed more than four million black owned businesses. Based on the average amount blacks use, black people used to start up their firms. It would have replaced the, the pipes in Flint, Michigan, three thousand times over. Covered all of Hurricane Katrina damage, and it's double the annual economic burden of the opioid crisis. It's a big number. It, that's the community development aspect of this. And so, when, when it's not just housing, it's all these other issues that face Black American life. So I wrote a Know Your Price as a way to, to not just talk about housing, but I wanted, and I could, I did not want to fall in that trap. I did not want to say if we could only fix housing. No, I want to say this is a devaluation issue. Certainly it impacts housing, but it also impacts these other areas. What are the consequences for the nation if we don't change? You know, this is what's interesting. It's, it's a um, classic example of cut your nose to spite your face. You know, if black people represent about 14 percent of the U.S. population, but only two percent of the nation's employer businesses, only two percent. That largely that's because our equity in our homes are wanting. Most people start their businesses using the equity in their home. Now, if if the number of black businesses um, equal or was equivalent to the black population, there would be 800,000 more black businesses. 800,000. That would add trillions to the economy. But because people are so wedded and so endeared by um, current practices and they're unwilling to see the opportunity that is presented to, um, by, by equity, um, we're, we're continuously throttling the economy. I mean, I say all the time, equity is stimulus. Mm. When, you know, I, I, I um, generally talk about underappreciated assets, meaning if you add water, it will grow. The underappreciated assets in the United States are concentrated in black communities. They're the business owners, the homes, um, the talent, the treasure, the infrastructure. If, if we invest in those things, everyone benefits. Mm. And so for me, it's like, how do we get the greatest return? both fiscally and morally, it's by investing in Black lives, clearly. Well, now that you brought up the investment, is it time to talk about the R word that people don't like to talk about, which is reparations? Uh, Since the loss of wealth has been just enduring and it's so baked in. So, I mean, we did get Juneteenth, but should we be talking, in which people actually lost all of that, and it happened all over the country, uh, lost businesses, homes, generational wealth. So should we be talking about reparations? Yeah, well, th- it's not really a controversial topic in America. Let- let's be real. Um, 
it's only controversial when you're talking about black people getting reparations. You know, we um, we we've seen Japanese in turn get reparations. We see Native Americans get reparations. We've seen it internationally where um, um, Jewish uh, communities um, devastated by the Holocaust um, receive reparations. We've even seen 9-11 victims get reparations. And, and, you know, what's interesting, after a few weeks of being socially distanced, the, the business community screamed to the federal government, you've got to provide us relief. You have to provide us relief. Well, what does relief look like when you've been socially distanced for generations? Mm. You know, um, we, we deserve reparations. It's an invoice that's been unpaid ever since um, we were promised 40 acres and a mule. Um, and not only that, but we have Jim Crow racism. You have racist housing policies. And this wasn't like, particularly the, the, the racist housing policy, that wasn't that long ago when it was legal to discriminate against Black people. It was legal for most of our time in, in this country. And so um, this idea that when people say reparations, that, oh, they'll say, oh, I, I didn't own any slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to, I can't pay for that. No, we're not asking individuals to pay for it. We're saying the, <laughs> the, federal, the federal government pays for it. And there's lots of federal services I don't use, but I, I contribute to for these very reasons. But by the way, there are reparations programs sprouting up all throughout the country at the lo- at a local level. And, and I write about this. My, my colleague and I, Rashawn Ray, and I talk about establishing a reparative culture. Um, and so you see Asheville, you see um, Evanston, you see state efforts in California, Maryland, um, Virginia. Um, you know, reparations won't come from Washington they'll go, it'll go to Washington. And so all these things on the ground happening will hopefully lead to um, a robust reparations program at the federal level, because we're learning how to do this along the way. So um, um, I'm not afraid, people aren't really afraid of reparations. They just, they're just anxious about giving reparations to black people. I'm loving this conversation and so can relate to it. Um, you know, your community that you looked at Wilkins, Wilkinsburg, I believe. Yeah, Wilkinsburg. And that, and, and just it's, it, and I come from a majority black community in Baltimore, as I said, and you can see those stories repeated. Um, but what question have I not asked you that I should have? Because you have something that you want to say on that particular issue. Well, I always talk about why, I named the book Know Your Price. And for me, my, my, my favorite play in the whole wide world is Two Trains Running by August. <gasps> oh, so, he's got his ham. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, let, 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 me, let me tell the story. So the main character, the main character, uh, um, Memphis, is about to have his property seized through eminent domain by the city of Pittsburgh. Um, and the city of Pittsburgh offers Memphis $15,000 for his restaurant. And, and I'm paraphrasing, but the main character throughout the uh, play goes, I got my price. I know my price. Um, and it's a refrain through the, the, the play. There's another character, Hambone, who makes a deal with a proprietor that if he paints a fence, he's going to get his ham. He paints a fence, but he never gets his ham. 
And throughout the play, he's like, give me my hand, give me my hand. And we don't know if he had mental illness before um, he painted the fence, but he eventually goes mad, demanding, and dies, demanding his hand. Now, there is a happy ending. The main character, Memphis, gets $35,000, well above the original offer, and we're assuming he's getting the market rate or the white rate. But the moral of the story is you got to know you have worth and value. What I eat and you must fight. What I try to do is give people the price to stand on. But and we got to stand on that price, even if it means going crazy and dying, you know, because, you know, some people lose. But we can't live a good life if we don't get what we deserve. And so for me, that's the motivation of the book. I, you know, I, I, you know I, I have some expertise in different domains, but I just want to see communities thrive. And we can't thrive under the current circumstances and people aren't going to give this to us. So I want people to demand their price. Know your price. As you can tell, I'm a big August Wilson fan. It's from your neck of the woods. That's exactly uh, Pittsburgh. Go yeah, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. And I've seen, I think, pretty much the cycle. Yeah. And he does speak to that, speak to the strength of communities. And I think that was, uh, you know, that's a gift of his plays because it's the inner lives of Black people, what they're worth, what they've given, our, our gifts, our frailties, our humanity. And we're still trying to know that. Get that value. And Mary, value. Uh, I, I know we're running out of time, but I, you know, I wanted to write a book that honored August Wilson. You know, he was one of the best policy uh, uh, writers without writing policy per se. You know, you have to run your data through the lived experience. And so being from Pittsburgh, you know, I, August Wilson is my, 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 one of my favorite writers. I mean, not let, we won't just say playwright, but just in greatest thinkers for me. And he shaped how I write policy. No question about it. He, he, he f- compels me to always make sure you run analysis through the lived experience because it's people. No, I, I hate the word data driven for that reason. You don't, you're not, you shouldn't be data driven. You should be community, people-driven, using data to improve their lives. Um, But I learned that from August Wilson. August Wilson taught me that. So, you know, there you have it. Thank you again for the book and for uh, paying tribute to August Wilson. (laughs) I didn't know we had another fanatic. And and, uh, for this conversation, because I do think the listeners of Equal Time is going to tell them a lot of things that maybe they hadn't thought about and uh, that they need to hear about our future as a country, um, because we, are, we all have skin in the game. Exactly. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. What's keeping me up at night? I'm someone who's been known to mix politics with pop culture because, admit it, a lot of folks absorb what we listen to or see on TV or in the movies as kind of true. 
It's why many thought that only white guys with crew cuts had the right stuff before hidden figures told the story of the black women who fueled the space race. And for years, Westerns erased the tales of blacks, Hispanics, Asians, and Native Americans, except in stereotypical roles. Today's culture war includes, yes, pop culture, and it's a fight worth having. It's why I'm paying attention and writing about it in my Roll Call column this week. Check it out. One Equal Time listener summed up what's keeping her up in two words, gun violence. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.